prep training next week, we'll just put Haley in charge. So everybody's okay with that. All right. Okay. Sounds like a win. So I don't know when the last time you went to a wedding, uh, or maybe the last time you had somebody in your family get married and you were responsible for the hospitality side. But can we all just agree that keeping an open bar open at a wedding is not easy, right? Keeping enough contents flowing at an open bar wedding, that's hard. That's a hospitality challenge. And that's a challenge for us. And we have wedding celebrations that last a night. In the Hebrew culture, they had wedding celebrations all week. So you got a week's worth of that stuff you got to take care of. It, it really is a hospitality challenge to keep things moving, to keep the good stuff flowing for that long. It is a hospitality challenge. So that's where we find ourselves in the text that Haley read for us. Jesus and his mother and the disciples, they're there and they're encountered with this challenge. Last week, uh, we remembered our baptism and the good news that God has chosen us. God has chosen you. God has chosen me. And today we're going to talk about, we get to remember the power and the dignity that we possess as persons who can respond to that call. We can either respond with belief, we can respond with trust, or we can respond with rejection, and we can walk away. It's our free will to do whichever we choose in that respect. So we're also asking in this context, what is it that keeps us going on mission? We're at the beginning of a year. We're looking at Jesus beginning his ministry, and we're remembering that as Jesus is in ministry, he has brought other people to be in ministry with him, his disciples in that day, and his disciples today. And so we find ourselves on mission, and we're always asking, what is it that really keeps us going? What is it that fuels the fire, so to speak, that keeps us on mission? It's, it's not the light show. It's not the stuff. It's something real. It's a connection, and we want to talk about that today. The miracle of faith. So we look at this text that uh, Haley read for us, and we see that there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, many scholars suppose that Mary was partly or fully responsible for catering the event. So I know some of you in this room have catering experience. Maybe you feel a little affinity with Mary in that respect and what a challenge it can be. But Mary's there. She's involved. Jesus is there. He and his disciples are involved. Now, John's gospel never refers to Mary by name. She is only referred to as the mother of Jesus. And it's a really interesting play that we'll see how it kind of works out here. But the presenting challenge, the presenting problem is the hospitality one when the wine runs out. So the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that of ours? Or what concern of that is this of yours? And he doesn't, woman, to say it like that in our English sounds a little bit disrespectful. But it wasn't at all disrespectful. It's the word that Jesus used when he was on the cross speaking to Mary. It's just the common respectful word for a lady in the culture. So he's just saying, woman, he doesn't call her mother. It's not like, oh, mother dear, don't worry. But it's, woman, don't be worried with that. It's not my time. Okay? So he's speaking to her in this way. There is uh, some, I think, differentiation going on here. Uh, it's hard for us today. It was hard for them then. Mary is adjusting to Jesus' new role. You know, and lots happened in the recent history there with Jesus and being 
called and, and finding out his ministry. He's baptized. He's anointed. The whole thing with John. So Mary is spending time with a very different person in that sense than she was before. This is Jesus going on mission. He's in his 30s now. And it's different than when Jesus was a teenager living in her house. So the changes are happening. And this is acknowledged in John's gospel. Jesus says that his hour has not yet come, and Mary still says, hey, servants, just do whatever Jesus tells you. Okay, So when he asks you to do something, just go ahead and do it. And so there in the wedding area were these six stone water jars for the rites of purification. John spells this out for us, which is nice, and we think he was writing to a more Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience, which is, includes us. I've never been to a wedding where you had to wash your hands outside in water jars before you can come in. I don't that doesn't resonate with me, so I appreciate that John spells it out, what they were for. So again, they have these twenty to thirty gallon jars. There's six of them, so we're talking hundred and twenty to what hundred and eighty gallons of water. And it's a this is a big enterprise. Things are going on. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he says to them, to the servants, okay now take some out and take it to the chief steward. All right now, the chief steward is the is the head of of hospitality. He's responsible for everything that's going on. He's working with the bridegroom to make sure that the party is solid, that everything's good, that the feast is there, that things are where they're supposed to be. This guy's in charge, and so they ladle some of this water out. They take it to the chief steward. He takes a sip, and he goes, "Huh? Well, isn't that interesting?" He said, this bridegroom is a little bit different because we all know it is a common practice then as it is today. If you have really good wine and really bad wine and you're going to use it all, which wine do you serve first? Of course, you serve the good wine first because once everybody's drank too much, they don't care what the wine tastes like. So you save the bad stuff for later. And the steward experiences something very different from this bridegroom. All of a sudden, they're drinking the good stuff. You uh, folks, uh, y'all won't remember this movie, but Silverado, the movie with, uh, well, there's a lot of stars in that movie, but the old Western. And remember the, the bartender, the, the short lady that's behind the bar, and she has the, the you know, the regular stuff. And then she has a, this really special bottle of the good stuff. And, and, you know, she takes it out for special occasions, special conversations. This is the good stuff. And the steward tastes it. He's like, man, this is really, this is some, this is pretty special. And, and we don't know what's going on here. Then John just cuts the story off. The wine is good. They served it last instead of first. And he says, now it was here. Jesus revealed his glory. This is the first of his signs in the Cana of Galilee. Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Foundational turning point in the gospel. The disciples in this moment at this time, they begin to lean into Jesus. They've begun to follow. They're inquiring. They're obeying. But now they believe. And they believe, and then it's its domino effect for people throughout this gospel and in history that begin to believe as they believe. So, in this story, we have both the revelation of Jesus and then the disciples' response to that revelation. And so what we want to talk about today is the revelation of Jesus and the different responses that are available to us as disciples today. 
we can respond in any number of ways. So the first thing that happens is Jesus reveals himself. He reveals his glory. He, he pulls back the curtain, right? And he shows, begins to show himself in the world. Now, I love that when Jesus is revealed, we see a little bit of Christ's character, I think, just because where he chooses to do it. First of all, it's a wedding. And everybody loves a wedding. We just look at the Disney movies that have been a hit. I mean, it's, things move towards the wedding. We love weddings. So Jesus shows up, reveals his glory at a wedding. Jesus has been invited to the wedding with his disciples. He's a man of the people, right? He's among the people. And he gets invited. He shows up at the wedding. And it just reminds us, you know, Christians who follow Jesus. Jesus was very often fasting. We're going to talk about that next week. But he was very often feasting. Was he not? He was often eating meals, feasts, with people that he wasn't really supposed to be eating with. Jesus was not afraid to show up at a party. He was not afraid to be there. He led us in fasting, and he leads us in feasting. We as Christians are people who should fast, and we are people who should feast. We're not curmudgeons. We're people who are joy-filled, who should, who should point to Jesus partly through the joy that we have experienced and that we share with others. Jesus reveals himself in this way at a party. The miracle itself that Jesus chooses to reveal himself with is what C.S. Lewis called a miracle of the old creation. Isn't this neat? You know, you've got a chemical process of water that can be turned into wine. We know how to do this. Some of you really know how to do this. You've, you've done the process before. You've grown the grapes or you've done whatever. And so this is something that can happen is naturally occurring. Water to wine. It's something, it's a miracle of the old order. So what happens in this story in John's gospel is we have a natural process that's made more immediate. A miracle of the old creation. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. Finally, as Jesus has revealed himself, I think one of the things that we're meant to see as the reader is sort of jumping off the page to us is that we have before us the new wine. right? So we as readers of John's Gospel, we've read the prophets, we've read the Psalms, we've heard the stories, we know, we've learned to anticipate that there's the possibility of someone coming who will be the Messiah, who will save us from our sins, who will set us free. We've anticipated that, and we've been drinking the good wine. The prophets, right? Moses, the law, we've been drinking the good wine. It's good stuff. It's not bad. It's very good wine. But Jesus shows up on the scene and we go, like the steward, we say, wow. They, they saved the best for last in the series of Revelation. This is the new wine. This is the good stuff. Where has this been all our lives? This is Jesus here before us. The good wine, the good stuff, the one that we've waited for. The one who is like Moses and the prophets, but he just takes it to another level. This is the Son of God. This is the one that we see before us. So, what are the possible responses that we have to the revelation of Jesus? Uh, the first response, I suppose, is just we could do nothing. We always have that choice. We can just sort of sit back and choose not to respond to the revelation at all. We can just say, eh, that's just like we sometimes read the paper. That's just another thing. Turn the page, go on about our business. That is a very real possibility. We all know what that's like. A second response that we see actually in John's gospel 
people that, that choose this route, and we know what this is like too, uh, one response to the revelation of Jesus is to get hooked on the miracle chase. You ever been there or seen someone there? You're just hooked on the next miracle fix. I'm looking for the next thing that God's going to do that's going to validate what I've hoped, and it's going to carry me to the next big thing. It's like the rodeo songs from Garth Brooks and Red Steagall and Chris Ledoux, where you experience the pain of the guy, and you can just see it in the whole song. And the guy is just, he's been rodeoing, but then he hangs up his hat, he hangs up his spurs, and he's home to raise a family. But what happens in the spring? He starts itching. And he sees those flyers come out for the next rodeo in the next town. And he goes, man, if I could just go one more time, I could go one more time and I'll win a little bit more and it'll help me. And then you either win a little bit and you're excited to go to the next one or you lose a little bit and you're embarrassed. So you got to go back to the next one so you can win what you lost and save face with your family. It's a tragic story. Forgive the rodeo metaphor. Just some, I saw people do this, you know, and, and, uh, and you watch that around you, but it's, it's what happens. It's we're seeking the next fix, the next thing. People do that with miracles. They do it with miracles in John's gospel. Getting hooked on the miracle chase. Fred Craddock, the great Presbyterian preacher and uh, seminary professor, said it this way. He said, John's gospel is full of accounts of people believing in miracles, but failing to believe in Jesus. They got the miracle. They missed the source of the miracle. They missed the capital M miracle. They missed Jesus. Seekers after miracles usually just need, they need that just one more miracle to be fully persuaded. Meanwhile, they miss the signs along the way. If I just had one more sign, God, one more miracle, just one more thing, if I could see, if you could just awe me one more time, then I would, then I'd be in. Then I would latch on, then I would be your guy. Not always a bad way to start, but uh, not a good place to end up. It will leave us frustrated, burned out, and walking away sad, dejected. So the last response we want to talk about is the one that the disciples choose and the one that we are invited to choose as readers of this gospel. And that is the opportunity, the choice to believe in Jesus. Not to believe that Jesus existed, but to believe in Jesus. A better way to say it might be to believe into Jesus. We begin to lean into the reality of Jesus. So just a little bit about the anatomy of belief. When we talk about belief, what are we talking about? When we say, you know, I believe in this or I believe in that. Belief is one of those things that's proper to our humanity. Thanks be to God, we have the, the ability, we have the will, the energy to be able to believe in things. We can choose to believe, to not believe. We, we believe, we trust things all the time. Every decision we make, we weigh what we trust more, what we hope for more. We trust people, we trust things, we trust processes, we trust governments, we trust all kinds of things, and then we choose not to trust those things at times. It's a power that we have as humans that God has given us. It's a beautiful thing that we can lean our weight into something, into someone, into a group of people. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, I learned I learned the beginnings of this, I think, from my uh, high school ag teacher, my freshman year ag teacher, Tommy Thompson. And he would stand up there before the class. And I remember, uh, I'm get some smirks on the front row here, but I remember I'm starting to give reasons, right? And I'm scared to death and I'm going to give reasons. So, Mr. Strebeck, why did you place this class of American quarter horses 
4312. I think that number four was the best because he had a good solid bat. And he stopped me and he'd say, no, 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 no. Don't you ever say that in my class again. You don't think anymore. You believe. And if you don't believe it, I don't want to hear it come out of your mouth. You know, and I'm just in the back of my chair going, oh my gosh, I don't really believe it that strongly. It's just horses, man. But but he's pressing me. He's just like, when you get reasons, you better tell him what you believe and why. You tell him, I believe. I believe that number four exhibited strength throughout his hindquarters. Okay, I won't do the whole thing. But believe. Don't think. Uh, we even say in FFA, as we do other places, we have a creed. Right? I believe in the future of agriculture, of a faith born not of words, but of deeds. She could keep going. Or for you that went through it a long time ago is, is I believe in the future of farming. So we are, we are familiar with this. You have a, you have an army creed. You have a rifleman's creed. You have all kinds of creeds that things that we say that help us locate who we are and what it is that we're about in the world. Okay. So belief into Jesus. It's very interesting because this whole idea of believing into Jesus is actually the stated purpose of John's gospel. Don't you love it when the author tells you what the purpose of the book is? I remember being so frustrated in high school. I wasn't a great reader, and I was not a, definitely not a good comprehender, and I had trouble discerning when I would read, say, Wuthering Heights. Well, what was the purpose of the book? Why did the author write this book? And I'm going, I don't know. I wish they hadn't written the book. I don't understand it. It's over my head. So I love the fact that John just tells us why he wrote the book. So you look at the end of the book in John 20, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these that are written in the book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John's gospel, that you might believe in Jesus and that in believing, you might have life in his name. Perfect. Thank you, John, for telling us why you wrote the book. So we know if we get to the end of the book and we don't believe, well, we'll read again. Let's try round two. Let's see what it's like. Believing into is a dynamic activity. It's to lean one's whole weight into something. Um, John is unique in how he talks about faith, how he talks about belief. He's really the only gospel writer that makes a huge deal out of this as a verb. So almost a hundred times we see the verb for believe in John's gospel. Whereas the other gospel writers use a different word and usually a noun that is faith. So John is teaching us about this kind of leaning, this kind of lowering our shoulder, you know, just putting all of our weight on something that we trust. The great thing about belief into something, it can grow it can decline. It's like a muscle. It can atrophy and it can be strengthened. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's always growing or it's always declining. It never stays the same. We see this even with people in John's gospel, like Nicodemus, who starts out over here in the dark and he's not sure and he's exploring and Jesus is asking questions and he's not sure. And then later on, about uh, four chapters later, we see him inquiring again. And he's kind of around, but he's not fully in. And by the end of the gospel, Nicodemus is fully publicly identifying with Jesus. He's made the full gamut of belief, but he wasn't there to begin. So sometimes we can't remember the day or the time where we began leaning our weight into Jesus. 
Sometimes we just look back and say, you know, I don't know, somewhere along the way I just began to trust. I began to trust Jesus, that he was the son of God, that this was the pathway to life. I, I confessed it as a young child or I confessed it at church camp or whatever, but I, you know, I began to lean into this God somewhere along the way and I can't even tell you where or when. Sometimes it has beautiful moments where it brings clarity. And we can say with Paul, oh man, I know today, okay, I got it. I know whom I have believed. I know it. I got, I, I, I can just tell I'm confessing. I'm making that thing. So, believing into is a joint work between the Holy Spirit and our will. It's, it's a, it's a partnership. The Holy Spirit is at work revealing Jesus to us. Right? Without the revelation of Jesus, we, we couldn't just go believe in Him. We, we can't do this because we get smart enough or anything. It's definitely revelation initiated. So, but then, we, we have to do our part. Even in John's Gospel, they call it the work. It's the work of believing. It takes work. It takes growth to lean our trust, our weight, into something, into someone, in this case, into Jesus. So it's a joint work between the Holy Spirit calling, wooing, directing, guiding, and us answering the call with, yes, I'll lean my weight there. I know there's a million other places I could lean my weight, my hope, all my stuff, but I'm choosing Jesus. Believing into Christ, it's kind of like when Paul talks about in his letters, when he talks about being in Christ. Like we are members of the body of Christ, so we're in Christ. We sort of are relocated. What's the most common, most basic, probably most important real estate principle that you all hear anytime you're in it or your marketing class or anything else? Location, location, location. It's the critical thing about real estate. It's no different with belief with Christianity. It's all about location. Location, location, location. Where we stand, where we lean, changes everything. We move from people who lean and trust XYZ to people who begin to lean and trust, lean into and trust, believe into Jesus. It's life changing. It's life altering. And as John said at the end of his gospel, we begin to have life in his name. We all know what it's like to be lost, to be literally lost, to be intending to go somewhere and, you know, the GPS gets out of whack or the map, we, we thought we read it, but we're going a different way and, and we're just, we're just flat out lost, you know? We may not all raise our hands. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you've been there. So I'll just, I'll just take one for the team and say a time when I was lost. Um, I remember, uh, backpacking with some friends in the White Mountain Wilderness in New Mexico and, there were three of us college-aged guys, and we had gone with some seasoned backpackers who were, you know, the real deal, the Boy Scout, the whole bit. We, I'm like, I can't even, I can hardly read a compass today. I can barely read a compass when it tells me, you know, in. Like, okay, I think that's north. But I've, so I'm out there. So I have a decent sense of direction, but it's, 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 it's fake. So we're out there with these seasoned veterans, and we're all good. And then we remember, oh, no, it's. Friday night, and you guys have a trip home, and y'all got to be back to church on Sunday, so y'all got to leave Friday night instead of sun or Saturday morning when they were leaving. And we realized we're at the top of the mountain, and they're going to spend one night there. And, and we knew there was weather that was coming in. It was supposed to snow and whatever, and they had kind of picked out a nice little protected spot, and they knew it was going to snow, and then it was going to clear out, so it wasn't going to be a big deal the next day. 
But as we realize, oh no, we got to get down before dark and before all this stuff, you know, puts us, keeps us on the side of the mountain and we're not real sure. We got to go back a different way than we came. And so we get out our map and we look at it and we say, okay, that's where we got to go. You can kind of, you know, top of the mountain, you can see over there, like, all right, that's where the trailhead is. That's where we got to get back to. I remember being terrified. I was just scared to death because here I am with these other competent guys. We know where we're going, but we just not sure we're going to get there in time. We're not sure we're going exactly the right way. The snow's starting to fall. We're looking at our little thermometers on our backpack and it's getting down in the twenties and we're just going, Oh man, we don't have enough clothes for this. We're not ready for this. I'm going to have to, you know, somebody's going to have to write Amber a letter that I was dumb and I didn't plan and I didn't make it home and you know, the whole deal. And uh, I was scared, you know, we were, and we were scared. And I just remember the, the joy, the relief when we came into that clearing and it's like, Oh, okay. That's the trailhead. That's it. The pickup's right over there. We're going to make it. I think that's similar to what happens to us. We, we, in, in Christianity, you know, we, we have the experience of just feeling lost and being out and about and not sure exactly where we are, having a decent direction. And then we have these moments. These times where we're just called back to the simplicity of trusting in Jesus. And we just, oh, you let the guard down and the anxiety level goes down. And you go, okay, all right. I'm leaning into Jesus and I'm trusting that he's got me. He's got me. He's got my family. He's got us as a church. And it's better to lean there. This is a trustworthy place to stake our claim. I could, I could drive my stake in the ground somewhere else. But I'm choosing to put it here. It makes all the difference. We can't really talk about belief as we kind of close here in John's Gospel without talking about the fact that belief gets hard. It starts out sometimes with this excitement and response to a sign and revelation and there's a lot of just general excitement and thanks be to God. We should never undermine that or underplay that and we see someone who's newly awakened to the realities of Jesus and they begin to lean their weight in it and they didn't before, man, we ought to, we ought to be the first ones celebrating and, and, and just making a big deal out of it. But over time, it, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. And in fact, there is a kind of belief of leaning into that is based on not being able to see Jesus that John actually tells us is a greater kind of faith than if we could see Jesus with our eyes. Remember when Jesus was speaking to Thomas, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and what does Jesus say to him? Have you believed because you have seen me with your eyes? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's that's us. We've not seen Jesus in the flesh, and yet we have believed. There's a point there just a few chapters after this account today, in chapter 6, where Jesus begins to give some hard teachings and to talk about some things we have to do to be his disciples. And many of the disciples begin to walk away. And they just say, man, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> I thought that it was going to be this. Uh, I'm not seeing the immediate glory and the stuff. And I don't know that I want to put in that kind of time. So I'm out. And so Jesus asked Peter a real blunt question. He says, hey, Peter, what about you? Are you, uh, you going to walk off too? Are you out? And Peter has this great response. He says, Lord, where are we going to go? Where else could we possibly go? You are the one that holds the words of truth and life. So I'm, I'm sticking around. 
It's one of my favorite things that happens in the gospel. Jesus goes, yeah, it's hard, but I don't know where else I would go. I found life in you. What, what else would I do? And so he leans one more time into the arms of Jesus. I think Peter would say at the end of his life, it was worth it. It was worth it. I want to close today reading from a, a poem by Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver is uh, one of my favorite poets, and she died this week uh, in her 80s, lived a long, good life, and was a, a well-known poet. And she wrote a poem called When Death Comes. And I just want to read a little bit of it as, as we kind of round out and, and take a look at this whole subject of belief into Jesus. She's reflecting on when death comes, when it's all over. And she says, when it's over, I want to say all my life that I was a bride to amazement. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened and full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I want to say all my life that I was a bride married to amazement. We as Christians, that's what we say. We want to say all my life, I was a bride married to the amazement of Jesus, to the wonder of belief into Jesus. We found the kind of life that we couldn't find anywhere else. And that has made all the difference. Amen.